0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch, Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolford, and I am honored and delighted today to welcome to the program, Dr. Diana Baird-Njai. She is somebody that you cannot fill in one blank for, right? So I could say she is an artist. I could say she is a maker, a sewist, and a creative. I could say she is a curator, as in a senior curator for the Smithsonian. I could say she is a scholar and a cultural worker i could say she also has touched history while also making history and preserving history and so you're going to learn why in a bit from her own words about how amazing she is and why i'm so excited to talk with her today so diana welcome so much to the program Thank you,
1: Lisa. I am just so happy to be here and talking to you, and I enjoy your podcast. I listen, and, and it's wonderful to join that very special community of people who have been on your show. <laughs>
0: I am am so delighted. I am just so delighted to have you on and to talk with you. And I wanted to ask you to share with us a bit about your early sewing days. And when I said, y'all, that she has touched history, I mean that, I mean that, really mean it. This is someone who trained at the Harlem Youth Opportunity uh, Core group. That was started in the late 1960s by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, who are some black psychologists who kind of helped us to understand how anti black racism was so damaging in the lives of black children. And so, in addition to doing scholarly and academic work about it, they helped to create. A program in Harlem called the Harlem Youth Opportunities United, or Harry U, uh, American Social Activism Organization, that, that they founded, and one of the first directors was Cyril DeGrasse Tyson, who is the father of the astrophysicist Neil DeGrasse Tyson. I mean, it's just like what? And you were right there for some of the earliest days of that like amazing, exemplary program. This is someone who's learning couturier techniques from this program with Zelda Wynn Valdez. And if you don't know who that is, you need to get on some reading. Okay. You need to read. And I will put some links in there for you to read, but this is an amazing black woman pioneer in fashion and design and sewing who worked for, who sewed for celebrities who could look at somebody's body, like Ella Fitzgerald. And not she like, couldn't come in for a lot of fittings. So she would look at her and say, oh, okay, let me just make these adjustments and send her a beaded gown that fit. And I think she's like most known nowadays for creating the playboy bunny costume. Like that's one of the major things she often is referred to as. I think a lot of folks don't know that she did that, but she did so much. So mm-hmm. Diana, tell me how you got started. You said that your mom was a sewist and a tailor. And, and so that, did you follow in that, that those footsteps voluntarily or were you drafted? Into the, into the into the life.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I was always around my, my my mom, my the elder people in my family all sewed and they all made stuff and, and it was with textiles. And I actually was born in Harlem. I was born at Columbia Presbyterian. My mom actually at the time and my dad was in school and my mom had worked in, in factory sewing bags but she also did a lot of other stuff so she sent me to live with my grandparents you know that whole story so uh so rather than uh going back to the south as a lot of folks do my family is from the Caribbean and a lot of my older relatives had migrated to Bermuda and so I ended up from the age of about five months going back with my great-aunt who was like my grandma to uh live with her and one of the things with Bermuda is that not only after everything was done, I remember my elder sitting around the dining room table and she had her afghan and she had all of this sewing. And so they gave me a straight pin and some cloth to try to sew. Oh my gosh. A, a thread.
0: Tied around a strap. Now you know how hard it is to pull. Gosh, Were you were you an especially bad child? Was this like some elaborate punishment? oh no, 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 no.
1: (laughs) I mean, I was persistent, but this is how they were keeping me busy, and I'm like trying to pull this thing through. But it's really everybody
0: else, but not for me. (laughs) Exactly,
1: exactly. So when I was around, I must have been around eight or nine. There was a couple of women, some sisters. And they had a sewing school for young ladies. My auntie sent me to the sewing school. I had to take a ferry to get there. And so I remember bringing home my very, very first made-up. It was a little top and a little skirt. No, it was a culotte. Oh, my word. It was a culotte, right? And so, and it had a little bit of embroidery on the pocket, right? And so that hooked me, although, I mean... I made so many mistakes on that. It was ridiculous, but it got me hooked. And then there was the Francis, this was the Francis sister. Then there was a farm. Believe it or not, Bermuda is so small, but it has a farm, right? So, and we had friends down there. And I remember going over to um, these folks' house, and one of the elder sisters, she was getting ready to go to school, and she was ready to go abroad to go to school for me, it was just like so big, right? And so she used the dining room table and she was sewing every one of her outfits. And I said, wow, one day I want to do that. I want to sew everything I make. So fast forward, my mom ended up having a dry cleaning store. I have to boast about her because she yes. was one of the first Black women to have a dry cleaning business in New York, in Brooklyn right? But everybody in the family got drafted to work there. And so I, w- I ended up, because I had a little bit of sewing skill, I was the repair lady. Oh. So people would bring in the neighborhood, would bring their, you know, their pants to be hemmed, and their zipper that broke, and all that kind of stuff. And so I did that. And I was in high school. And in summers, I found about this wonderful program that was in Harlem, uh, How Are You Act? I didn't know anything about who founded it, who was in it, but I knew that it was a great place. Yes. And there was this really kind of tiny lady, but with, gosh, so much power, Zelda Wynne Valdez. And we used to call her Miss Wynne. And we had, about, we had about, I guess it was about hmm, maybe 15, 16 of us Mm-hmm. who were in her school and we had uh, and she taught us everything the first thing we had to do we had to make a cocktail apron and cocktail. I remember it had it had zigzag and we had to do it by hand there were machines there but she wanted us to learn hand work yes so we all sewed her and her favorite thing was and she told me later this is what her own grandmother taught her oh rip it out and do it again if it was not completely right you had to rip it out and do it again Wow. And she taught us flat pattern making. She taught us draping. She taught us all sorts of things. I mean, we had to come up with a collection. Wow. By the end of the, by the, end of the summer. It was, it was amazing. Just such an opportunity. Uh, you know, being trained by the best. Like We didn't even know, know that she was so famous. We didn't even know that she was so famous that she had done all this stuff. Oh, my this was like. She still had her, her place on 57th Street and Broadway, mm-hmm. and she would make things for Gladys Knight. She made Eartha Kitt's Paris wardrobe. Can you imagine that? She made Eartha Kitt's Paris wardrobe. wardrobe. She made Diane Carroll's dress, I think, for her wedding. Nat King Cole's, I think it must have been Nat King Cole's daughter's wedding dress. I mean, she did just amazing things. She, made, she also made Mae West's sequin gown. A lot of people don't know that. Wow. So she was just amazing and so this was like her second career being an educator passing her stuff on, passing her skills on. We ended up at the end of the summer. It was 1964 and it was the World's Fair was in Montreal. Wouldn't you believe that we got funds for us to all go up on a bus and to present our collections at the Montreal 1964 World Fair. I mean, we, we didn't
0: even know. We did not even know what <laughs> like, this was all okay, about. I guess I'll go on this bus trip. It seems like it's going right. to be a long way, but maybe it'll be fun. I don't know. Right, right, right.
1: You know, so we ended up staying in touch and she, you know, she got to know my mom and, and you know, I had, again, the really good fortune of, you know, after being involved with uh, a until I graduated from... High school and by that time we were actually at her house sitting down for dinner and she got this call on the phone and it was arthur mitchell and she came back to the table and said arthur mitchell has just asked me to be his designer at you know at the ballet you know at the, which was amazing
0: oh my God.
1: and and so we were there for actually for history And um, of course, she, you know, she left Haruac and and so on. But she stayed there until she was 95 years old. Wow. And she was, you know, after she was not as active as a designer, Mm -hmm. she was still the wardrobe person. Yes. And so I, I had the opportunity to go and visit her and to, I was now at the Smithsonian, and to talk to her and to get and to interview her just before she passed she passed about a couple of years later oh, but just an amazing i'm getting chills
0: amazing. i'm getting chills hearing this i mean you were saying how the school was located right next to the apollo theater that's right it was like, it was right next to the apollo <laughs> and that uh, you are a harlem born girl harlem born caribbean girl who has got to like to really to be there and to be in the New York art scene as part of your adolescence, that's as right. part of well, your development. That we,
1: That's right. By that time, we moved to Brooklyn. People who we know as a young adult, as I knew as a young adult, was yeah. like Brenda Connor Bay and a lot of the, the folks like right near Flatbush Avenue. Wow. And, and by that time, my, my mom's store was called afro Africa, caribbean dry cleaning and boutique, and I was the
0: boutique. <laughs> and you were doing, you were in there doing repairs and helping yeah. people get, you know, their, their broken busted zippers fixed and. As, exactly. far as Like participating, like not only just like meeting history and witnessing history, but creating it too in the same way that your mother created and made history by being the first black woman to have a dry cleaning service. And you helped to sustain that as it helped to sustain you. I mean, it really is a beautiful story about community and about what it means to grow deeply attached to and be fortified by these bonds. And it's it's such a beautiful story. And it seems like that shaped your career as a curator, as someone who continued to do cultural work. I know one of the projects I was reading about, one of your projects was about at the Smithsonian, was you did a, a Bermudan Festival. Um, That's right. that was able to kind of bring in diasporic folks people were able to come from all over the U.S. who had connections to Bermuda but also I think that Bermuda itself was involved in it so can you talk oh, about yeah. that about how that works it felt like you were kind of like tracing your steps a little bit um going oh. back to your roots so say more about that I'd love to hear about that
1: oh yeah well that was that was um called Bermuda Connections and yes um it was really interesting, because I had not been back to Bermuda for a really long time, so uh, this prop program came up, and and really we we moved to Brooklyn, and after I came you know I, we had moved back to Brooklyn by the time I came back from Bermuda, but you know it was it was really responsible for my really early years, and so it was wonderful to get back there. my My um, elders had passed on. But I actually have people I'm still in touch with who I have literally known for almost 70 years. And, you know, so that was that was great. And so what we did was that we really started to think about, okay, what's you know, what is Bermudian culture? And Bermudian culture is very largely, you know, people think of it as as British,
0: Mm. but
1: it was as much or even more shaped by black Bermudians. Yes. When Bermudians play cricket, it's a whole other thing. It's not like <laughs> the cricket that you hear about because the interesting thing, Cup Match is like the big national holiday in Bermuda. Okay. And Cup Match was shaped by Black Bermudians who could not play on the white Bermudian teams.
0: Oh. And
1: they also had the way that Bermudians protected themselves from some of the racism that was rampant obviously, you know, um, it was that they had lodges and everybody belonged to a lodge and the lodges had colors. So there were, uh, there was the Somerset Lodge and that was, was the colors were red and blue and St. George's and their colors were light blue and dark blue. And around cut match time, you either were St. George's or you were Somerset and there was nothing in between. Between. And, And so and so we'd have, the and every people would dress for a cup match. I mean, that was a major thing. You know, they'd dress in their blue and blue or their red and blue and stuff. And so we were able to bring cup match to the National Mall and talk about the whole importance of the lodges in terms of African or Black Bermudian self-sufficiency because the lodges help the people to build houses. They help people to very, you know, very folks, the whole, it was a really a life of community.
0: Yes, and like a a mutual aid society, a mutual, well it's mutual aid and exactly and reinforcement. And because, you know, the white folks and the colonials aren't gonna do anything that our needs, only we know what our needs are. So that's why it's important to have these formations. Yeah, absolutely. That's right, that's right. So, you know, we looked into that, we
1: looked into, all the different things, including Bermudian architecture with the uh, Bermuda takes rainwater for, you know, rainwater. In fact, everybody has a tank on their veranda, not the porch, but their veranda. And, you know, you have to save that rainwater. So the roofs were limestone because the houses were built out of the island. And so when it rained, they would go down these stepped roofs and go down a spout and it was saved. So it was ecologically, Yes, so you know, important too, you know? It's sustainable.
0: So I, I'm, I'm telling you, Black folks have been doing pro-environmental work uh, long before they had a name for it. We've had to repurpose right. things and reuse things and collect and make do for quite some time. That's right.
1: That's right. So with the housing in Bermuda, you know, people would build their each other's house. Like, you know, when my uncle was building his house, the community would get together. His The guys would get together and help him build his house. And then they'd go on and build another house and then they go on and build another house. So that was an important part of the society and the community. So these are all things, these are just a hint at what we did in Bermuda. Uh, I guess the other thing that from Bermuda is that I actually got to the Smithsonian because, you know, my husband uh, was Senegalese. We met in in New York in school, Mm -hmm. but um, I got to know Senegalese culture first of all through the immigrant community, mm-hmm. Senegalese community, and then you know coming to Senegal yes. to meet his family and, and and so on. So, I was at New York State Council on the Arts. I was I had left huh, I got a, I had left my first my curatorial position, which was at the Muse Community Museum. Okay, And that's a whole other story. <laughs> but I, I was at the New York State Council in the Arts. And then we heard about this, that, that the Smithsonian wanted to do a program at, in Senegal. And John uh, Whitten Franklin, who was John Hill Franklin's son, was working at the Smithsonian, but he had taught in Senegal. And he convinced you know the folks at the Smithsonian to do a Senegal program. And so they had hired me and my husband to come and to do that program and I was supposed to be on a one-year leave and then 32 (laughs) years later you know
0: they're like you think she's coming back (laughs) we don't think so (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: yeah so you know so and I just you know it was just wonderful it was like a a dream come true we we visited all over Senegal my husband came from comes from or came from a very, very old family of oral historians, griots, musicians, and so he knew all the traditional folks. In fact, his father was a traditional healer and a and hunter and a tailor. His sister had a show about tradition in Senegal and just like a really wonderful opportunity. So we learned a lot.
0: What I appreciate about this so much, Diana, is how thoroughly reciprocal, how thoroughly invested and reciprocal your work seems to be. In the same way that you are scholarly and studying these things, you are also getting to live them as a practice and to see how everybody is participating in making culture, right? And so I wanted to slow down a little bit, just ask for a few definitions. It might be helpful for folks who are listening. What does a curator do? Ah. <laughs> what, what does a curator do? I mean, because you know, I'm coming from, some, from a background that I'm familiar with museum studies. I'm familiar mm-hmm. with you know, that this is a field, but for, you know, for people who aren't necessarily in the academy or in the art space, but are just interested, how would they understand like, what a curator does and why a curator is important for keeping, for keeping cultural records? Okay, well
1: that's that's a great question. And it was a good
0: question, but I, I know yeah, you have a good answer.
1: <laughs> curating has become this word now that everybody uses. You know, curating my whatever. You know, but yeah. But okay, so curators are charged with two sides of things. The um, and it, and and the word was originally used with with objects primarily, and that becomes important because I I'm want to talk about what I do, which is a little bit different. Yeah. In Museums curators would be charged with the care of objects but also the interpretation of objects in a museum. So you have a collection and a curator may acquire things for that collection and they may make sure that they're well taken care of along with a conservator and other things. But they also would create exhibitions; they would curate exhibitions and curating exhibitions means uh, taking from those objects that and looking at the patterns between those objects and what the meanings of those objects are and putting them together in a way to tell a story, okay? So a curator, in a way, is a storyteller. and But a storyteller using elements and in the past using objects to tell the story. Mm. Now, the word curating as far as what I do at the Smithsonian, we curate traditions, not people, but we we you know, we bring traditions together and we talk about what's living, living culture and not again to put people on exhibit and that was done in a long time ago, but to curate dialogues between people who have different stories to tell. So our, uh, what we do with the Smithsonian Folklife Festival which has been around since 1967, is to bring people together who represent a tradition, who represent a culture and try to tell that story or not, we don't try to tell that story but we try to like facilitate that gathering so that people can tell their own stories about what the culture means to them. Yes. Okay. So when the Bermudians came, how we started that, and this is a a really good example. When the, when we were talking to Bermudians, the very first thing we did was to have, bring everybody together in one place. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people together who represented different parts of Bermudian Culture and Bermudian society. And we say, okay, you know, tell us, you know, how do you see your culture and how can we represent that to the public, to other people who don't know anything? And we had journalists, we had researchers, we do, we do training of people now, especially from the community. And we say, okay, these are the things we need. We need to have you um, look into the traditions that make Bermuda, Bermuda. Okay, And then we need you to tell us who are the people who are the masters at this tradition. Ah. So, you know, who are the great cricketers? Who are the great kite makers? Bermuda has a big kite culture. Uh You know, who, how do you tell this story? Who are the masons who make the the buildings, right? And then bring them together to talk and to demonstrate what they do. And so every year we do program and the program, what my role is curator along with bringing people from communities together and, and is to facilitate community curation, something that represents the culture. And it's really important that that just be you know, people's voices. I mean, I'm, you know, I have some skills, but those skills, you know, I wanna make sure that people have those skills to tell their own stories. So that's-
0: It's wonderful because I can absolutely see why you thrive in this role and why it's so important to have you in it. Because I can imagine that there are curators and curatorial practices that act as gatekeepers and barriers to keep people out. And your practice seems almost the complete opposite of that. It's about how can we build and create, how can I amplify what's already there so people know that what they're doing is valuable and important and part of a larger history, right? That they are making. Exactly. Exactly, and you know, I think
1: that you know, there's that whole that tale that you know, they say that you know, the whether it's the hunter or the lion that tells the tale depends on who's the who's the prey. Exactly. That's you are
0: the prey or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. So the the proverb, I think, it goes something like, "When the lions write history, the hunter will cease to be the hero." You know, exactly. Like exactly. It's that, it's exactly. Like putting that story, you know, shifting the emphasis and the focus of power. You know, exactly. what I was also thinking was, I was thinking about the way that you have talked so beautifully about how everyone has this opportunity to to kind of to weigh in, to play in, to participate in culture. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of processes. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could talk a bit about the wonderful Will to Adorn project, because- (laughs) One of the things I was thinking about with it was, this was a few years ago, Beyonce and her, um, in the Homecoming album that she did a visual album and a documentary. And she was talking about her working with all these young people from HBCUs, the dancers. She was like, you know, between the haircuts and the way their bodies move, it's just so much damn swag. And what I see in what Beyonce was doing with Homecoming and trying to kind of present that as something to people who might not have known about it, is also Uh what The Will to Adorn did and also kind of curated and pulled together. And um, could you talk a bit about The Will to Adorn project and about African-American fashion culture styling as something that the Smithsonian would be interested in and have a need to uh, record and write about? Because it was really amazing. Oh, wow.
1: Well, thanks. And I like being in the same sentences Queen Bay here you know <laughs> but no 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 but but actually you know how that started was that I'm I've always been interested in dress obviously and, and you know both as a maker and I thought I was going to be a designer and and I ended up in anthropology but one of the reasons why I ended up in anthropology and this is connected to the world to adore is because remember I was saying that I was a little Caribbean kid growing up in New York City, and didn't understand where I fit in. And I remember even in college, in the beginning of college, in the middle of the the um, the Black Power movement, and we get together at the BSU, and there was a big cultural component to that, you know. So, yeah. and part of it was that people would talk about the foods they grew up eating, and I remember them talking about you know grits and talking about you know chitlins and hog and all that you know like the song and all all that stuff right and i was like oh my god i grew up eating curry and peas and rice and and stuff that you know beef patties and stuff like also that also
0: delicious also also delicious, also delicious. Also delicious. you are yeah. making me quite hungry right now i love some <laughs> and rice and i'm actually thinking oh it's friday i can get oxtails today That's what I'm thinking. That's right, that's right, oh my goodness. Well, you know, the thing is though, that I
1: was, you know, at that time, there was only, you could be black or you could be Oreo, you know, you could be Uh, black or you could be white, right? Yeah. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of space for those of us who, you know, had a bit of, we knew we were black, but we, or African-American, I should say, because my dad, that was a very important thing. And he was a sociolinguist, which is a whole other ah. story. So we knew that, you know, we had our culture. Yes. Was a, Af- a culture of African descent, but it was different. Yes. And so one of the things in my mind that made me go into anthropology was to tell that story yeah. and to figure it out for myself. Yes. So with The Will to Adorn, it started out, and my mom had such great style. She was, well, until 85, she was in, in fashion shows and things. Amazing. So that was the other part of the culture. And so I realized that, look, you know, we talk about fashion, but a lot of folks don't talk about that vernacular culture, how we curate our closets, we curate our, you know, we choose by what we decide we're going to wear. We choose. That's right. And it's a cultural choice. It's a folk art. It's a car. It's an art. It's a, it's a tradition, right? Yes. Yes, and there are also these people without which we could not implement that tradition. No, When That's we're going to get our hair? Yeah,
0: You know, when we're going to have to make, make the outfits. Someone's got to make the outfits. Somebody's going right. to get the outfits it, off the rack at J.C. <laughs> right, right, and and even if we do, we're going to do something to them, you know. Right.
1: and it's throughout the culture. And the other thing was, from the time that when we were enslaved, they had to make they had to make sumptuary laws because as soon as we got any kind of opportunity, we were dressing flyer than anybody else around. Yes. You know, yes. and even when, you know, when in, in the senior in, in, um, in New Orleans, you know, they tried to say, well, you know, folks couldn't, the Creole ladies couldn't
0: wear their, their hair, hair down because they right. their hair out. So they said, okay. okay we're gonna do something with like you you, you all That's have to wrap world. your head you have to you know these women have right, to, you have to wrap your head you have to keep your hair cu- covered because we don't want to see all that colored hair we don't want to exactly you don't want to see the evidence of all our race mixing involuntary exactly. or not we don't want to see exactly. a, of it on your head so we're going to cover that up and then you're like okay so, we'll cover okay. it up. okay right. right right so you know and that was some of the most elegant
1: elegant yes. so, ways right. of dressing yes So, the other part of that is that I realized that, first of all, the first thing that people see of us, and it's the source of our joy, but it's also been the source of discrimination against us, is what we look like. Yes. And so, where we have a choice, you know, we have always used our clothing as a way to express ourselves, to resist, to show our joy. Yes. And to really do the best, you know, that, that we can do. But there are also communities of style. So not all of us dress the same way. So many just like in, in, in our music, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whether you know, we have so many types of music, yeah. we have just as many types of dress. Yes. And so the will to adorn was shaped around, it was a phrase from Zora Neale Hurston. And she said, you know, that one of the, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the most important parts of African-American culture is the will to adorn. Mm -hmm. And she talked about dress. She talked about the way we adorn our words. She talked about the way that we embellish, you know, we just love to embellish, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Hey, friends. Hey, what are you doing on Thursday around 3 p.m. or so? You got 30 minutes to hang out with Black Women Stitch? You got 60 If so, come through for 30 minute Thursdays, Thursdays 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can chill with Black Woman Stitch on Instagram Live or talk with us through the two way audio on Clubhouse at 3:30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's Thursdays for 30 minutes. Come hang out, chill, and have fun with us. See you Thursday. I'm just so excited that you mentioned Zora and you know, of her work Some that she also trained as an anthropologist, right, that she studied right. with Boaz and all these big folks. But one of the things that her language is also so great at is it's adornment. The way that she has a, such a beautiful ear for dialogue. And I'm reminded yeah. of the Black folks that, you know, in, that I'm in community with, which is mostly with Black people, the way we even talk about COVID-19 as a pandemic. I have heard so many different ways that we, as Black folks, talk about this. People call it a panini. They call it a <laughs> panorama. They called it a personal pizza. We are in the middle of a, of a global planapoli. We are in the middle of a, a global, I mean, we're in the, you know, again, you know, we're in the middle of this big old paparazzi going on here. People aren't having no sense about it. But that is again, and again, I don't know if white folks are doing it too, because I'm not in community (laughs) with white people like that, right? But I know for us, have you heard that too? I might just bug it. I've heard that. Yeah, But I've heard Miss Corona, Miss Corona, all of the Miss Corona. Miss Corona, don't let me go on vacation this summer. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, yeah,
1: no, we 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 do words. We do we, words. We do you know.
0: words. We do. And yeah. I know your dad is a sociolinguistic linguist. Me <laughs> we do. Oh yeah, words. And that's so that, I love that idea of the adornment, the embellishment, the you know, bringing good energy around something that's bad. Like that's how we. That's how we thrive in a country not made for us you know exactly. By us, exactly but not for us yeah
1: exactly exactly and and so you know when I started the project I was thinking well is there an overall african-american aesthetic mm-hmm. you know and if there is an aesthetic what is it right and then I realized that it's not one it's a, it's, it's quite a few yes and you know and and it comes out of really different Com- these different communities uh-huh. but the things that that i realized at the end because i've written about this and actually there will be a book there There will be a book soon it will be a book very soon. I can't um, wait. I can't
0: wait. Yeah, the manuscript is done Whoa. images are going in i can't All wait I i'm also i'm going to get on your list um for an interview please so we can talk about it when the book comes out okay okay that that's great
1: yeah so with the with the will to adorn what we were looking at is the aesthetic, which ends up being around value and aesthetics means values, yeah. values relating to beauty. Yes. You know, how do we look at beauty? Right. And, but there, underneath all of the, the diversity in our dress are values of freedom and values of community. Yes and also the right to self-define because what we're doing is we're defining ourselves through our dress yeah and don't think that people don't realize that you know in the dominant white society and try to squash it Mm -hmm. because in doing the research if you think about all of those lawsuits that were brought again, or, or all of those rules that were made and still, you know, were, are, were being made to keep us from wearing our hair the way that, that we grows wanted out to of wear our, our hair and dictating. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, things like the Crown Act had to be yes. passed, you know, yes, as, exactly. as, you know, things like that. But then also the variation. So it turned out to be uh, the Wilter Dorn Project. First of all, we did a folk life festival program, mm-hmm. and that was wonderful because we were able to show every day. We had fashion shows on the mall, and we had people talking about from various communities what the meaning of the the clothing that they were wearing meant. So we had everything from we had members of uh, we had designers, we had designer makers, sewists, and so on. We had milliners we had tattooists wow we had i mean we brought everybody down there
0: barbers <laughs> and the braiders shows,
1: barbers braiders yeah and oh, and, amazing. and from many different communities so like one day we helped, we we focused on makers of faith for example so we had fashion shows from people in the and designers from people in the muslim community we had a, a sunday hat Oh my show gosh! And the is there. We had all sorts of folks. We had another time. We had folks from the LGBT, uh, the 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 gay ball community, and and the. I mean, we we oh. had all sorts of folks come together for the Wheel to Adorn. So after that, we did a project with young people. Mm-hmm. Well, we did the research for it was like nine cities, and then after the Wheel to Adorn program. We were able to get a grant to work with different museums across the country yes. to train interns to do their own research on their dress, dress in their community. We had, um, oh gosh, we had the, the uh, DuSable in oh, Chicago no. was involved. MoAD was involved. Oh, we had San Antonio, the, the, what do you call it? What is that? The Institute for Texan Culture. We had uh, my, my very good friend, um, Madaha Kinsey from Mind Builders in, in the Bronx, in New York. She had her young people, she has a wonderful program that has gone on for many, many years that started by my mentor, um, Beverly Robinson at UCLA. And she had kids you know, interviewing people, yes. interviewing the makers and then re, and then giving that back to the community, doing programs back in their communities. And they each did it in their own way. So that came out of the project. Oh, my God. And um, so it's still, we have an app, which is still going, I think. Oh, my uh, God. If you have an iPhone and you can tell your own story about dress and that, you know, it could download it. I'm not sure, you know, the, the problem with apps is that you have to keep them up yeah. every time. Yeah. And so you have to have money to keep them up and so on. And so on. But, yeah, these are all things that uh, had to do with the will to adorn. Yeah one last thing you know that we have there were artisans and this here we come to the african american craft initiative yeah, that's what because... i was
0: going to ask you about that's my next question <laughs> look at you forecasting already keep going, keep going. <laughs>
1: <gasps> you know one of the sections of the will to was looking at style artisans those people who keep us looking good yes whether it be our hair whether it look you know be the clothing and and that kind of uh, whether it be designing for our specific communities yes you know and so after that after the will to adorn yeah I'm still right I'm still finishing off that but when the pandemic hit I was actually getting ready to do something well I had done something called the crafts of African fashion and the crafts of African fashion was looking at those African artisans uh-huh. who are you know who create kente, kente weavers yes and, yes and people who create wonderful wonderful things and then when uh, that when the pandemic hit we had to pivot like everybody else yes and I said well what I am interested in as a maker myself because I was still sewing and making and stuff like that you know, is why don't we look at why there are only about 10 people in our craft community that get all the attention? And it's not that they don't deserve a lot of That's attention not. and they, they they deserve their flowers, they deserve but then you know it seemed like all of the mainstream white dominated craft organizations. They only knew these 10 people yes. and they kept on going back and forth. And, and if they ever had an exhibition, you could count the people who were going to be in it because you knew who they were. Right. right. And right. it turned out they were self-referential. Yes. So I said, well, what we need is a project that will do some research, create a database of a lot more folks who are doing stuff. And not only and what we need to do is to start convening, but start with the idea that no folklore without the folk, you know, nothing about us without, without us. us. That's start right. Start from makers ourselves within the African-American community, and then maybe maker organizations and get that down and talk about what are our priorities? What do we want to see done? What yes. do we need, right? And then we can have a, a, a something uh, with the mainstream organizations that are trying to do their DEAI, Right. And not mad at them because they're really, you know. It's something kind that of needs you know, to be done. It's an
0: idea whose time has it long passed. Needs to be done. Exactly, needs to be done. Exactly. Exactly.
1: But they need to be kind of directed by us in yeah. the African American community. Yes. And you know, and and by the African American community writ large. I also. So, I mean, those of us who are, again, with the diversity, I, I have to say a real quick thing. You know, I have colleague, uh, Camila bryce Laporte, for instance, she's doing this wonderful project called Black in the Land of the Piscataway. And she's interviewing, she's interviewing Black people who also have dual heritage as being people of, of African descent as well. And there have been projects like Indivisible who have taken it from the indigenous point of view and indigenous and black, but this is black and indigenous. indigenous she's yeah. working, yeah. So she's working with other folks, um, fellow maker and um, scholar and so on, uh, Khabibian uh, Janku from Sankofa, who's also a wonderful indigo artist. Uh, Amazing. Oh my God, she, she should be on the too. But also Kimberly Kelly, who is who's an incredible maker um, and also scholar, and she is pulling together collectives of indigenous black and black folks to keep those skills alive you know mm. so anyway, so all of this is about keeping the idea that we're diverse people but who are linked together by our African heritage and by you know by our situation here in this, in this yes. society. We also, um, as makers, you know, we need to have our stories told, not just 10 people, but as big as it can be. And exactly. the biggest surprise with this program, uh, this project so far, which is still ongoing, is how this is such a big movement. Yes. Lisa, you know, I was surprised at how many organizations, collectives, oh my gosh, there's so many, many people that I've been, I've found out about and learned and all the connections. It's it's just really wonderful. And in fact, I have to admit, I didn't know about Stitch Please until, (laughs) until we were doing the work
0: for this, but wow, you know. Yes, I'm so ex- the reason I'm I'm excited that you're excited by b- and being surprised by this, because what I'm learning is if we let the dominant culture tell our story. They will always go back to the same 10 people right because yeah. it's self-referential and they feel like they've done all the work they need to do by identifying the 10. And right. it, it gives the impression that there is scarcity right. But one thing that I loved about being part of the African American craft initiative and the think tank was the abundance. It was so many, like we couldn't even all be in the same session. Like you had like six or seven different sessions of different people in different groups. And I met folks in the group that I was with. I got to connect with uh, Michael, the the chef who does- um, Oh, Michael Twitty. Michael Twitty, who ended up, (laughs) I, I, I connected with him. I was reading his articles in my class and I, Connected with him after being in that session, and he came and spoke to my students. You know, oh, that's like, true. well, he, I have a, a Michael's twenty story. You know,
1: he was my intern. No way, Wait. what he was my intern before in his last year at Howard. And I mean, I mean, just amazing, such a wonderful, bright, you know, incredible, incredible
0: and he's, historian. He's so and great. And, and Does he have two yeah. James Beard awards? Like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, you just. Shovel those out to people like this is no, not at all, you know, at all. Yeah, you have done such a wonderful job and the way that you are so connected to so many different folks and one of the things that I really appreciate about your work, your vision, your perspective, is that you want to be an amplifier, you want to make sure that other folks are being heard and that we're all being like recognized and documented and like you really truly believe that there's no folklore without the folk, you know. And that that big shift from curating objects to stories to people without without the kind of the gatekeeping, it really is a beautiful, beautiful gift that you are giving to posterity to our community, but to just the world of knowledge in general. And that is so vital because there are so many ways that we might say, well, I don't see this and I don't see that. And it's hard to become something you've never seen, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but the Mm -hmm. fact that you put so much out there for us to see and to learn from is just incredible. It's just really uh, such a powerful and permanent and ongoing gift that you have given. And that I think is I that I want to give you props for right now. And I hope that you continue. I hope that people are telling you this all the time. So.
1: oh well, thank you so much. I mean it's and, and I feel I mean you're doing the work you're doing the work yourself. You know, what you're doing both as a scholar and uh, you know, with your students, but also through this podcast and the other stuff that you do. I mean, I think that it's it's amazing and, and you know how important it is for our young people to recognize that the things that they do and 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 these traditions yes and you know continuing to do like you can be a scholar and an artist yes and you don't have to start stop being one you could you could sew and you could write and you could do all these things yes. I mean I think that that's you know you show that all the time in in your work so
0: <laughs> I really do pretty, yeah we, we all in there together you know very uh, good it's, it's, it's a big time mutual admiration society. I'm gonna to have to close this out soon, but I want to ask you this question. I've been asking this question of folks the the slogan of the Stitch please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together okay I love it. that's what it is. It. So if I were to ask you for advice and what mm-hmm. would you say, what would you offer from your interpretation, your work as a curator, as a maker, as a scholar, what would you say to help someone get their stitch together? What kind of advice would you offer?
1: Wow, well, first of all, talk to your aunties, talk to your, you know, get the stories, get the stories and even sit by the side of your grandma, your aunties, your uncles who stitch too, you know, uh, all those folks and, and really and continue to do it, you know, if you don't get it right first, do what uh, Miss Wynn said. You know, rip it out and do it again. <laughs> so that would be my story. You know, just keep on, keep on at it. Don't think you have to be one thing. Like, don't think you have to be a scholar and not an artist. You can do both. Don't think you have to be one thing and not the other. So that's that's my big advice. <laughs>
0: I love it. Oh my gosh. I am so grateful to you, Diana, for taking the time to talk to me all the way from Senegal today. I am so, so grateful for our first conversation. Our first time okay. with you on the podcast. Because okay. like I said, there is y'all, I have barely scratched the surface in this, in this conversation. Oh. And I am so grateful for you for being with, being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: And uh, have
0: a great time. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black lives matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out with, to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, And you can find Black Woman Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts directories or services allow for reviews but for those who do for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the stitch please podcast that is incredibly helpful thank you so much come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together